Welcome to the Woodshop Life Podcast, a bi-weekly podcast focused on the craft of woodworking. I'm Guy of Guy's Woodshop, and I'm joined by Hui Huen of the Alabama Woodworker. Hey, Guy. How are you? I'm doing great. That's just special. And Sean Walker of Simple Cove. Good evening, fellas. Good evening. How are you, man? Pretty good. This podcast is intended to answer questions from the woodworking community and give you some of our perspectives on how we get things done in our own shops. We also have a Patreon account, and right now we have one level, and we are simply asking for a small donation just to try to cover the costs of bringing you this podcast. So please go to patreon.com slash woodshoplife. I would also like to say hello to a new patron we have this time, Tim Morrill, and we sincerely hope that you will give us your support. Uh, make sure you listen all the way to the end of the show. We are going to give a shout out to some folks who we think are notable woodworkers to follow on social media. And uh, I think we're going to get right into it. And I think we, you have the first question. This question is from Joshua Messick. And he asks, I was wondering if any of you use specialty chisels in your work, fishtail or skew chisels, for example. Do you have multiple sets, mortise, dovetail, pairing, etc.? Keep up the good work. Thanks for bringing the podcast. So I do have multiple or different types of chisels, but to be honest, I don't use them that much. And, you know, we've talked about this before. I think probably the most important chisels uh, that I have are just my bench chisels, my uh, uh, Sweetheart 750s. But I do have a pair of skew chisels and I do have mortise chisels, a set of those, and I do have dovetail chisels. And, And, you know... I feel like I kind of got them just because I wanted them in my uh, in my hanging cabinet. I've never used the mortise chisels and I've never used the skew, skew chisels. I have used the dovetail chisels a couple of times because they have a really nice tapered edge. So when pairing out dovetails, um, excuse me, uh, pin sockets and whatnot, it really does help because it doesn't bruise the tails. But man, the mortise chisels, I've just never used them because often either I'm just using the mortiser or I'm drilling them out on the drill press, the mortises that is drilling them out on the drill press, and then just using the uh, my bench chisels to to pare down the waste. Sean, do you have any different sets of chisels or are you just using your, your bench chisels for everything? Yeah, I have two sets of bench chisels. Uh, the first set was my first real nice set and they're uh, Wood River. The second set, I paid a little bit more money and they are the Ashley Isles uh, beveled edge chisels. They're a little bit smaller than the uh, the Wood River set. So I primarily use them for, uh, you know, some hand tool work like dovetails and, and pins and stuff because they're lighter and they're less stress uh, and fatigue on the hands. But if I need to do some pairing, I'll break out the the larger uh, Wood River uh, chisels that I have. I do have one mortising uh, chisel. I've never used it, never sharpened it. <laughs> so it just stays in the uh, in the bench. But I primarily like you, we just just use the uh, the one set for 99 percent of the work. Those Ashley Isles are, are pretty thin, aren't they? Yeah, they are. Uh, they're pretty thin. I don't have yeah, the- they're, they're, they're rounded too on top, so they don't bruise things, especially when you're doing uh, like the tails for dovetails, correct? Uh, there are two different sets, uh, but yes, okay. yeah, mine is, um, I believe that it, it, they are a little rounded on top, but yeah, there's two different sets. I have the, uh, the, the, uh, the beveled edge chisels, not the, um, okay. the larger bench chisels. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. I don't have any special chisels. I have, I shouldn't say that. I've got two sets. Actually, I've got three sets of chisels. I've got some old craftsman butt chisels that I use for, I said butt, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, 
for just, you know, like carpentry stuff around the house. I'm sorry. I apologize about my dog barking. And I've got a set of Narex chisels, which are actually pretty nice. That's just the cheap ones. They actually hold the edge pretty well, but they are metric. So they don't always match up with what I want to do. And I have a set of Stanley Sweetheart, like you do, Hui. Yeah. I do have a set of Narex. Oh, that dog is just going to drive me crazy. <laughs> I've determined today that my dog is actually a lesser demon. <laughs> and she's actually very evil. So, anyways, I do have a set of mortising chisels. They are Narex, so they are millimeters. Mm-hmm. But I do use those actually quite often, really? especially when I use the hollow chisel mortiser. Mm. Because it's, I, I like the extra thickness of them when I'm cleaning out the stuff at the bottom. Yeah, they do have a lot of weight they, behind them. Well, it's not that. It's just they're they're much thicker. And I, I think when I go down into a, a, a mortise and want to, you know, like lever up the stuff, they just they're just much sturdier. Mm-hmm. So I do I do use them. I just wish they weren't metric, so they don't always fit where I need them to fit. I have the uh, the Narex mortising chisels as well. I just hadn't used them. I usually just grab my uh, my bench chisels. And, and, you know, it might also be a case that I just hadn't really practiced or used them quite often. I mean, how often do we get something and really kind of ogle over it and <laughs> never actually use it? I guess that's the situation oftentimes with me. But the, the skew chisels that I have came with the Ashley Isles chisels that I had gotten. I, I think it was like a set of like four or five. It kind of came with some of these smaller round back chisels and then a couple skew chisels or something like that. But I've never used a skew chisel. Have you, Sean, at all? I have not. And I do want to make one correction. I do not have the the round back chisels. They do sell the round back dovetail chisels, but mine are just the the, the beveled edge. But yeah. no, yeah. I would love to have a, uh, a skew chisel. Um, I've often thought about making making one using the, uh, the grinder. Mm-hmm. Just haven't gotten around to it. Yeah, I know a couple of guys have... Uh, got those like Aldi chisels, you know, the ones that are mm-hmm. like $5 for a pack. And so then they'll go to the bench grinder and actually make a fishtail chisel or uh, or a yep. skew chisel out of those. And I think that's a great idea because I mean, really, how often are you doing it? And you get a f- pack of five of those chisels in there and it's like $5. And I use that. I have, I have two sets of those Aldi chisels. And I mean, I use use them all the time. And if you're curious on, on what Hui is saying, Fine Woodworking put out an article showing you how to make a skew chisel from a, uh, a spare chisel um, using the grinder. So definitely check that out if you're interested. Yeah. All right. I think, uh, Sean, you have the next question. Oh, I do, huh? Okay. Yes, let's, you do. All right. Let's get right into it. This one is from Clean Cut Woodworking. Good morning, Guy, Hui, and Sean. I had a question on tool brands. I get asked all the time from my peers in the community, what brand of tool is better than another? My general answer to all of them is usually the same every time. Within the budget you're looking to spend, there are usually a few different brands. With those price points, uh, all of those tools are going to perform basically at the same level and have the same features. The best thing you can do is go put your hands on it fill and fill the tool and see how it works. My question to you all is when you're looking for a new tool, no matter a hand tool or a power tool, is a particular brand one of the first things you look for or do you go after that budget point versus quality and functionality? Well, uh, for me, it depends on the tool. If it's a tool that has many manufacturers, I'll start at the price and then I'll work my way uh, down the manufacturer's lists. So for instance, I'm looking at buying a router-based dovetail jig 
And I know there's a few different brands, but mainly two brands will stand out. One being the Lee and the other one being the, uh, the, the Porter cable. Mm-hmm. Um, so those two brands stand out when it comes to quality and repeatability. So I'll start at the brand first, and then I will follow that up with uh, determining what, uh, what model works best for my needs, some reviews and asking a few other folks that have used both of them. Um, so when it comes with, for a, you know, a niche tool like that, I'll start and look and see what's available on the market and then go from there. The other end of the spectrum, uh, for instance, is a bandsaw that I'm looking at buying. Um, I'll start with the price range and then work through the manufacturers to narrow that down. I'll look at the reviews, uh, the features, the reputation of the manufacturer before determining because a thing like a bandsaw, there's a lot of manufacturers. So you're not, you're not pigeonholed into one or two really good bandsaws. There's, you know, five or six different good brands. So I feel comfortable starting at, at the price and then working my way back through the brands. Now I say mm-hmm. this, but I bought a, a saw stop, which is more expensive than similar saws that perform just as well, but you got to pay the extra price for the, the safety technology. So that's what I paid for hand tools. If I'm buying new and not used, I stick to either Lee Nelson or Lee Valley because they're, you know, the, the, the premium brands that are in hand tools. I'll just look and see what they have. And it's a preference on the slight differences between the two brands. And I very rarely buy used hand tools. So yeah, I don't think I've ever bought a used hand tool. Well, yep. I shouldn't say that. I bought some planes off of eBay. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you talked about the Porter Cable and the lead, lead jig. Man, those two dovetail jigs are very, very far apart from each other in the sense of price point, but also in the sense of features. I mean, you look at the Porter Cable, it really only does one spacing, right? Whereas the lead jig has the feature of uh, variable spacing and a whole multitude of different things that can actually be done with it versus just dovetails, right? Am I right about that? No, you're, you're absolutely right. Yeah, but uh, I was just going to say, it, it, it really depends on what you're looking for, though, Hui, because, you know, to me, I don't care about dovetails. So if I can get the spacing I need from the Porter Cable, right. and it's much easier to set up and use than the lead jig, which it is, it's a better it's a better deal for you. Mm-hmm. Now, you actually bought your lead jig used, though, right? Yeah, I bought my lead jig. No, but my lead jig I bought, I bought off eBay. It was brand new in a box. Mm. It had never been used, mm-hmm. but it was it was discontinued ten years ago. Actually, you know, fifteen years ago now. <laughs> so, um, but before that, I had you know just like a uh, actually it was a Craftsman that I had bought you know twenty some years ago, and uh, it worked fine. It just did the 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 one spacing, and I was perfectly fine with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think you have to determine, like I was saying, what, what works best for you. Do you need the flexibility? Do you just need to cut dovetails? And then, you know, those are the two brands in my mind for the dovetail jigs that I would start at anyways. Yeah. Well, you also talked about bandsaws. I mean, one of the reasons why I went with the Grizzly was because it was a more uh, budget-friendly bandsaw, Grizzly bandsaw. And to get a lot of the extra features on that Grizzly, you had to pay more money. I mean, for instance, like having a break on the bandsaw was like an extra hundred or a couple hundred dollars. And my thought was, is that a feature that I really need? Or can I just have a, you know, block of two by four next to me if I need to slow the saw down quickly and just put the piece of two by four into the blade just to slow down the blade if I need to slow down the blade quickly. So, you know, I, I think features is another thing to really consider when you're when you're looking at tools, particularly, you know, the more expensive tools are going to have a lot more features. And that's where, what you're paying for. And the one thing, like you mentioned on the Grizzly, you have options. Whereas if you go with something like Powermatic, you you've got one option mm-hmm. 
and that's yeah. the you know, that's what you're going to have to pay. But with the Grizzly, you have options, and you know you can spend less and get more, or you can spend more and get the extra little features. You know, it's all depends on you have the flexibility to choose. This is such a loaded question, Brent, because there's just so much that you can think about when buying tools, whether it's new or used, power or hand, whatever it is. You can really just overthink yourself. You really don't have to do that. Just look at what you need the tool to do and put yourself in a budget. I always look at the budget first. It's Mm -hmm. like, okay, I need this tool to do this function for me and I can afford to spend this much. And then I just do a a search to find out what tools are in my price range. Mm -hmm. And then I start looking at reviews, but I don't spend days looking at reviews because, you know, it's, it's, there's a, an old saying that I don't know if it's an old saying, (laughs) but there's just this uh, thing that says, you know, People that are unhappy are more likely to complain about it mm-hmm. than people that are happy with a product. So when you start, when you see like multiple negative reviews about something, that doesn't really necessarily mean as much as you think it does. Those are just the people that they've pissed off. Right. You're not hearing from all the people that are really generally happy with the, with the product. Mm-hmm. So you have to take all that stuff with a grain of salt. But I said, you can just overanalyze it to death and you're not going to get anything. Just look at the, uh, as, as far as, you know, what you need, what you're willing to pay for it. Look at some reviews, nail it down to a couple manufacturers and, you know, go from there. I agree. Um, you know, when you say you start, it, I, I think it, it's important to read reviews but like you're saying, don't get caught up in that because, you know, they could have just had a, a bad product. Um, but when you start at a budget, let me ask you, are you, say you have a budget for, I don't know, $2,000 for a bandsaw. It's just random numbers. Do you, when you start looking at products, do you, do you peg right immediately at the top of that budget and say, what's as close to that 2000? I guess what I'm saying is like, this is the point to where I start to look at the differences in the manufacturers and the, and the prices of the different saws and the features that they bring. Cause it could, I could end up saving four or $500 on a different saw. That's not a, you know, a higher end saw and get everything that I need. And maybe I overanalyze yeah. stuff too much, but that's where my brain goes. You're also very cheap, Sean. Yes. <laughs> if I can get that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we've, we've all, we've determined that already. That you're a cheap bastard. Uh, Absolutely. It's fine. It's <laughs> Well, that's good. I think we're on to Guy now, right? I've got the next question. This is from Jesse. And Jesse asks, well, he says, hey, guys, keep up the good work on the podcast. Well, thank you, Jesse. Uh, my question is regarding grain fillers. Have you ever used these on open grain species such as oak to get a smooth finish? I have an oak bar table and I'm in the process of making, I'm in the process of making and I was contemplating using this after a water-based dye and before a water, before, <clears throat> let me start that over, <laughs> using this after a water-based dye and before a finished coat of water locks. Yes. You know, have you ever used these on an open grain species such as oak? Well, that's the only time you'd really use it mm. is on an open grain species. I've never used it on oak. I have used water. Um, grain filler on ash before. I've used it on walnut quite a few times. I've used 
basically two products. I've used the Balin stuff, which is a real mess. It's oil-based, and uh, <laughs> it's very labor-intensive, and again, just it's a mess. I've also used a water-based product called, oh, what was that stuff called? Aquacoat. No, uh, it doesn't matter. And that I didn't use properly. What was it that you did wrong? I put that stuff down before I used like a an oil or a shellac on the top. Mm. So it it always had it always had the look of a water based finish on top. It was walnut, so I didn't get the the darkening amber effect that you would get with an oil over the top of it. Mm. Mm. So it was it made it water white, and I couldn't I couldn't penetrate the surface anymore. Gotcha. But it did work really well. Um, all these Grainville Aqualac, I think is what it was called. Yeah, they do work well. If you want to get a totally smooth finish on something like that, you're almost forced to use a, a grain sealer. But if you're not going to use an oil-based finish, what was the other, the other grain filler you mentioned, Sean? Uh, I've used uh, Timbermate and I've used Aquacoat. Aquacoat. Yeah, Timbermate's another one. Those are both water-based, and you really should put down something first. Yes. Before you put that stuff on, uh, that would be my only recommendation. Uh, you have to do a couple coats of it. You put it down first, you know, with the grain, and then you sand it back, and then you do it, or excuse me, do it against the grain or cross grain, sand it back, and then put down a coat with the grain, and then put your finish over the top of it. And they work. They work really well if you want to get rid of that open pore look. So, uh, Sean, what was your experience with the aqua coat? The aqua coat is to be applied extremely thin, really thin. Yeah. And they often use a squeegee with it to, to remove the excess and let it dry. It dries really quick, but you're going to need probably five, six coats because it's so super thin. The Timbermate is water-based as well, thins well. It stinks, but it works very well. It's thicker, so you're going to need less coats. Depending on how thin you uh, you thin it out with water, uh, you can get by with two coats like Guy's saying. Uh, but the Aqua Coat, you have to apply it really thin and uh, and keep pl- applying and applying it until you top off those pores and you don't see that anymore. And um, it, it works well, just like the, the Timbermate. Now, I have no experience with grain filler at all. But you guys were saying something interesting. With the water-based stuff, you have to seal with like a shellac or some type of uh, oil, uh, I guess like a wiping varnish or something like that to get that like oiled look. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Yeah. If you put that, if you put that uh, grain filler down, it seals the wood. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the oil is really not going to penetrate. Right. Okay. Yeah. I so it's 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 kind of like taking a, a piece of walnut and putting water based polyurethane on it. It just looks like Blah. yeah, just it's very bland. Yeah. And with the the timber mate, there is a potential that you could possibly uh, stain the wood. Not that's not you know that's on top of the surface. So you put that that shellac barrier coat down, and when you sand it all the way back, it stays in the pores, but you've removed it from the surface allowing you to, like I was saying, put your oil finishes, but it's also not going to potentially stain the top of the surface with that color. Yeah. Now, I've used the Balins many times in the past. What made that so 
Like the, what made that so sloppy? It's just sloppy, messy stuff because you got you have to put it down, and then you have to rub it into the grain with burlap. Oh wow, that's what they recommend, anyways. Huh. And uh, it takes a while to do. You know, it takes days to dry, and you got to do it a couple times. It's just labor intensive, but it looks really nice. It does a really nice job, and it comes in different colors, which the water-based stuff with the exception of the timber mate doesn't. Mm. So most other stuff, it's like a clear yeah. filler, but the, the Balins does work really well. Does the Balins still allow the finish or, you know, whatever? Yeah. It's oil-based. Yeah. So you're still getting that depth of color with. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. But it's just, it's just a, it's just a messy, hard job, <laughs> but it looks really good after you get done. Cool. I know nothing about grain filler, so it's all you guys there. So <laughs> it definitely adds a little bit of time to the finishing process. Mm-hmm. But if you're wanting that glass smooth feel and look, you know, it's the way to go. And there's several different ways to fill the pores, but these are just since he's asking about those specific, you know, products or whatever. Neat. Interesting. All right. Who's got the next one? It is me. And this one is from David. I have a couple questions about lumber storage. This would be for dried lumber. Do you store it horizontally with stickers, horizontally without stickers, or can you store it vertical? For longer lumber, it may be more efficient to store it vertically. What do you guys do? Uh, For my already dried lumber, I store my lumber vertically. And I actually use this ramp that I saw Steve lied. One of the guys that uh, that I follow uh, make a make this like sort of inclined ramp that he was able to put his storage vertically so that it wouldn't it wouldn't fall forward. Uh, but then I realized that it was actually an idea that he had gotten from you guy from a video. Uh, I didn't even. I was going to say, yeah, he did that after I did it. <laughs> yeah, um, but it was uh, it, so 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 the way ultimately that ramp prevents the lumber from falling forward, and then you also use like. Uh, either uh, electrical metal conduit that's cut to length to sort of parse out your your lumber along the wall, uh, and then uh, putting uh, bungee cords in between those uh, metal conduit pieces so that it keeps the lumber from falling forward. Uh, I haven't had an issue with the lumber cupping or warping being stored like that because, again, it's it's lumber that's already been dried. So for dried lumber, I store it vertically. And Guy, I know you do the same. So I'll go ahead and let you talk about maybe where you got that idea or where you heard about it. Well, I mean, it's just that's that's the age old question. Pins first or tails first? Yeah. Um, <laughs> tails. <laughs> the reason I went vertical was because I had stored my wood horizontally for years. Every time I needed a board... It was always, and I keep a good amount of wood in stock, not Mm -hmm. thousands of board feet, but usually a couple, 300. And every time I would look for a piece of of lumber, it was always the one, I always wanted the board that was always on the bottom, way in the back. Mm -hmm. So the way my shop is set up, I have to move machines out of the way to get at my lumber rack, which is not a big deal. You know, it only takes me five minutes. But I move machines out of the way, and then I had to get that one board. I would spend the next half hour unloading all the wood off my entire rack 
just to get to that board back there and go, uh, that one's really not going to work anyways. And then you got to put it all back too. (laughs) I got to put it all back. It, It was just a huge pain in the rear end for me. So I went vertical. There's only one thing with storing your wood vertical. If you get wood that has any type of moisture in it Mm -hmm. and you put it vertical in your rack to acclimate or dry in your shop, it will warp and twist on the end Mm -hmm. of the board, lowest to the floor. I've had a few boards do that on me. Not that often, but it does happen. But it's usually not a big deal because it's only, you know, if I got an eight foot board in there, it's, you know, maybe two feet of the end of the board just gets all wonky. You know, you, you go into any lumber yard, they've got all kinds of wood stored vertically. Yeah. Yep. So there's a lot of people say, no, you got to store it horizontal and you have to put stickers on it and you have to put weight on it. And blah, 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 you know. Uh, there, there, there probably is some truth to that, but you know, people just get wrapped around the axle just way too much about silly stuff. Mm-hmm. And um, as long as the wood is dry, it can be stored vertically. I like storing it vertically because it's like kind of like cards in a deck. I can just go through the boards really quickly to find out what I want. Right, Sean. Yeah, same thing. Vertical lumber rack, and the reason why is because it saves space, and that's the only reason I do it that way. Uh, when I started seven, eight years ago, um, it just seemed like the natural thing to do is to stand it up because that's, you know, every place that I bought lumber had it standing up vertically. Yep. So I was like, okay, it's going to save room. Um, it's going to take up some floor space, but I will uh, gain some of the wall space for cabinetry and stuff. So vertical for me, but I do have a question for you guys. Uh, the bottom of your lumber rack, uh, do you have anything between the bottom of the lumber and the floor, like some plywood base or anything like that, or, or yeah. is it setting on the concrete? It's not saying you don't want to set it, let it set on the concrete because yep. the concrete will leach extra moisture out of the bottom of the wood. Yeah. I wanted to bring that up because that's a pretty good thing to cover. Well, we said it at the top of the question was that there was a, a, a wooden ramp. Yeah. That tilts back towards the wall. Yeah. Oh, I wasn't listening to we. Yeah, I know. <laughs> that's okay. That's so, okay, Sean. You never do. <laughs> huh? <laughs> so... Yeah, it's just like a, a platform that, you know, tilts towards the back. And it's not a, a, a really drastic angle or anything, but it's just to keep the wood to help push it up against the wall. Yeah. Yeah. Well, good point, We Thanks now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so consensus there. We all store it vertically. I thought I, I thought for sure, uh, Sean, that you, you stored yours horizontally. I used to store mine horizontally. I used to. No. What, what, why did you change to, to vertical, Hui? To save space. To save space and for the same reason of like cards in a deck, right? I mean, if it's, if it's stored horizontally and I got to get the, the card that's on the bottom of the deck, now I got to, I got to take all the stuff off on top. Whereas if it's yeah. stored vertically, I can, you know, I've got the uh, space on the other side. I can just take the board and switch it over, switch it over to the other column of boards that I have. And now I can inspect each of the boards as they as they come through. My vertical lumber rack takes up just as much space as my horizontal rack. I don't mm-hmm. think I saved any space. And I know a lot of guys that don't keep a lot of wood in their shop, mm-hmm. you know, maybe 50 to 100 board feet, and they put their horizontal rack you know, starting four or five feet off the floor. So they actually reclaim 
a lot of that space underneath to put tools into stuff. So, you know, those are all things to consider. You know, how much lumber are you going to store? How much wall space do you have? Things like that. But I didn't save any room by going to a, to a vertical rack. My setup is 28 inches wide and about 16 inches deep is the footprint that all mine takes up. And I can fit roughly 150 board feet in that little area. Yeah, well, I've, I've got I've, my mine is taking up eight feet of wall space. You got too much lumber, guy. <laughs> no, no, I don't. I've got just the right amount. I don't have eight foot of clearance anywhere on my uh, walls unless I was like, you know, seven, eight feet up high. And then it's just a pain yeah. in the butt to get the lumber down. Yeah. For yeah. me also, it's, it's for those longer boards too. You know, like, like you said, Sean, taking up a length of eight feet wall, that's, that's significant uh, for me. Uh, well, I, I'm, I probably have the biggest shop out of all you guys. So I shut up. But <laughs> I was like, yeah, I don't want to hear about it. You could lay each board out flat on your floor there, we. <laughs> yeah, but, but I mean, I, I can store a ten foot tall board, right, and and not yeah. take up ten foot of of uh, of wall space. Anyway, yeah. How, how tall are your ceilings? I think ten foot. So yeah, so not foot. quite ten foot. I mean, maybe a little. My, mine are mine are nine, which okay. helps. I think if my my the ceiling height was eight foot, I would still be horizontal. Okay. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. What really uh, sucks is I had to cut a little bit of the those uh, babinga boards off at the end to to stand them up vertically. <laughs> that must have hurt. Yeah, I don't I don't think I've ever seen a babinga board in person. I just like saying babinga. You can come by. I've got a 16 inch wide, a 17 inch wide, and a 21 inch wide board. Jeez. All right, I'll be over tomorrow. And, uh, <laughs> I'll pick it up. <laughs> All right, so I think I have the next one, and uh, it's very fitting, and uh, it's also about lumber. It is from Winter Wolf Woodworking. How much scrap is too much? I would like to hold on to smaller pieces I can make into wedges, bow ties, etc., but when is it enough truly enough? Are there certain pieces you'll keep, more rare species of wood, or is it straight to the kindling pile? Uh, that's a good question, and when I first started woodworking, I'd save anything that looked like it, I could turn it into some sort of project. So boards that were two inches wide and 12 inches long, I would keep. Um, and it was always in the way, a pain in the butt. Um, especially if it was a nice species, I would hang on to really small pieces of the board um, because I always thought, hey, I'm going to get back into uh, to using these eventually. But now my method is if it's four to six inches wide and, and you know, 15, 20 inches long, I'll keep it. Anything under that, I'm just, you know, I'm giving to... A, a coworker of mine that that will use it for whatever. I'm not worried about what he'll use it for, but I'm not going to keep it in my shop. I will, however, if it's you know a couple of pieces, I'll keep for to make some loose tenon stock for the domino. But mm. for the most part, I toss it if it's less than four to six inches wide and fifteen to twenty inches long. Um, I'll toss it. Now the thing about plywood or sheet goods in general, I will I would normally toss that, but I would uh, apply that same rule of four to six inches wide. 12, 15, 20 inches long because of the CNC machine. I will use that to make templates. But most of the time, I'm tossing the small stuff because I just forget that it's in the rack and I won't go back to it and and use it on a project. I'll just break down new stock and and move forward because, you know, I like to, to match the grain and the color and the tone of the wood. And oftentimes the scrap pieces just don't match. But that's that's my method. What do you guys do with your scrap wood? I, I tend to keep for whatever project I'm working on, I'll keep as much of the scrap as I possibly can before it become until it becomes unbearable. 
in, in which case I just can't move anywhere and anywhere I'm, I, I want to put a piece or I want to put a finished piece of work, I've got to move scrap wood or whatnot. I also do keep this sort of garbage can on, on some wheels and any of the bigger pieces I just kind of throw in there. And then when that gets filled up, I kind of go through it and pick through it and say, okay, what are the best pieces? Cause I got to get rid of some of these things that really it's me getting rid of scrap is, is simply out of just necessity of space. I never really go through the criteria like you do, Sean, of like, oh, it's four to six inches this and, you know, this this length. I, I have like tons of plywood scrap that I keep around and it just becomes so overbearing because I'm always constantly making jigs out of it. So I'm just always tossing away plywood scrap. Yeah. Yeah, I have a uh, like a rolling cart that's got scrap wood in it. And, and for the last two or three years it's like a big giant game of jenga when i go to look for a piece of wood in there yeah like i'm afraid to pull a piece out or the whole stack's (laughs) gonna fall on me and uh you know for the most part i've got that thing full and i really don't add to it Mm. Um, so right now when i build a project i i save all my cutoffs for every project until I'm done with the project. Right. And then if I find some pieces, and and, and we said it before, I, I don't have a, a hard, fast rule. Well, this piece is 11 inches. I'm not keeping it because I only keep pieces 12 inch long. I, I, don't, I don't do any of that stuff. But if I have a piece of wood that, you know, is maybe foot or so long and four or five inches wide, and it's got some nice grain on it, it's something I know I will use in the future. I'll keep it and it'll go on the Jenga pile. <laughs> Other than that, I keep, like I said, all the cutoffs from everything I do on a, on a particular project. And then kind of as the, the, the project is over, then I go through it and I say, well, this all gets thrown away. I don't have a kindling pile because I've, I'm not allowed to burn stuff here in my neighborhood. And I don't like to use my wood burning fireplace because they're dirty and nasty things. Every now and then my, my son comes over or my one of my two son-in-laws come over and they they I give them big boxes full of wood for their fires in their backyard kind of thing. Yeah. What about your sheet goods? I save a lot of a lot of plywood. <laughs> and that mostly has to do with uh, what we's talking about. I always need like a small piece of plywood yeah to make a jig out of and I'm always looking for those. So but I do throw a lot of that out too and and I, before I save a piece of plywood, I look over where I keep my sheet goods and I see what I have there. It's like, no, I don't need to save this. And I, I just throw it out. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, right now, I, I all my my scraps for the sheet good area and my Jenga pile cart are full. And I really don't add much to them. Almost everything gets tossed. Just for clarification, I don't break out a measuring tape on every offcut. <laughs> Sean, we know you do, okay? I'm surprised you don't break out a calculator and figure out the cost of the board footage of the scrap. This well, is a $3.28 piece of wood. I'm not throwing that out. Yeah, well, if I had 100 of them, I'd have $328. Yeah, and I guess I can also keep the, uh, the dust from the dust collector or the chips. No, I, I mainly just eyeball it. Yeah, until I, I turn just, the camera off and then I'll go back and measure all 15 cutoffs. 
<laughs> yeah, cutoffs are, are when you're going through it when you're when you're working on a project. Keeping your cutoffs is a very good thing because yes. if you screw up a part or something like that, it's nice to have a piece that you know is going to have the the grain and color match mm-hmm. um, that the other piece do, or the same thickness, right? As what you were working with before. So I'm not the one to make spare parts. I know a lot of guys, and you know, I make I. I'm making this table. I'm making five legs. I don't make five legs, but I keep an extra piece of lumber in case I do need to make a fifth leg in case mm-hmm. I do something like put the mortises on the wrong side, mm-hmm. which, you know, happens. Yeah. I shouldn't say put the mortises on the wrong side, taper the wrong side. Mm-hmm. So, Yeah. I've got three trash cans in my shop. And when I start a project, they're empty. And then as I build the project, each, each can gets uh, filled, and by the end of the project, I've got three uh, stacked cans that are ready to be emptied. Three and most of, the, <laughs> yeah, most of the time, and they're small, you know, like kitchen size, 16, 18 oh, okay. gallon or whatever that is. They're not real big. Uh, and uh, at the end of the end of the project, I got one of those uh, big old trash cans that they come and lift up and empty. And what are those things called? Uh, big ass trash cans. Big ass trash cans, yeah. I just dump it in there and, and not worry about it. All right. Yeah. So, uh, Guy, what do you have for us for your last question? Oh, the next question is to me. Yeah. Let me, let me find it here. Let me find it. I bet it's about vacuum bags. It is. <laughs> it's, from, it's from Sergeant Maker. And it says, I find the vacuum bag to be more than just a clamp for veneer. I agree. It's a very useful tool. I want one. Now, I'd like to know what I should be looking for when considering a purchase. That is actually a pretty easy question to answer. It depends on what you want to do with the back bag. I would recommend to start with a three CFM system with a four by four bag. That'll get you to 90% of what you need to do right there. Unless you're doing like big tabletops or something like that, you don't need much more than that, except maybe a bigger bag. I've got three different bags. I've got a two by two for small pieces. I've got a four by four for medium sized pieces. And then I've got a, a four by eight for, you know, big tabletops and things like that. I find myself using the four by eight bag more than anything else, but I kind of like put the little clip halfway down it. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yep. The C channel clip. Yeah. So I only use half the, half, because the four by eight bags are open on both ends. Right. And uh, I find myself using that quite a bit because it's the only one that doesn't have a lot of holes in it. And I'm too lazy to, to, to patch the other ones. <laughs> <laughs> but as, as far as the, the vac pump itself, you can get away with a lot of different things. I've seen people use refrigeration pumps on the small bags. It just takes a long time to, to evacuate the air, but you can also get those bags and uh, evacuate the air with the shop vac, especially on the big ones. Now my, my pump is a six CFM and that's mainly cause I have the big bag and there are times when I've got that, you know, I'm using the full length of it tomorrow or th- Friday. Actually, I'm going to be using the full length of my bag. So that, that extra, draw of, of air out of the bag really helps. But if you're just getting into it, I, I think a CFM or a three CFM for a pump is a, is the sweet spot. Yeah. Uh, as far as a pump goes, 
As far as a bag goes, it really depends on what size you want. It also depends on the material. There are vinyl bags and there's polyurethane bags. There's mm-hmm. 20 mil vinyl and 30 mil vinyl. Bags I have right now are 30 mil vinyl. And that's just the thickness of them versus the 20 mil. They, they resist punctures a little bit better, but I still manage to get holes in them all the time. But they're very stiff. You get the polyurethane bags and they're very flexible. Yeah. Uh, and they 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 tend not to get holes poked them in as easy, but they're also three times as much as the vinyl bags. Mm-hmm. So a four by eight vinyl bag you can probably get around one hundred and fifty bucks. The polyurethane bag is well over three hundred. Yeah, they're they're pricey. I've got a three CFM pump, and I, I I agree with you, guy. I think it's kind of the sweet spot for. I have a four by eight bag as well. A polyurethane bag. Uh, so when when I need to actually use that, oh, if you can afford the expensive poly or polyurethane bag, why don't you get a CFN six CFM pump? You cheap bugger. Yeah, we <laughs> quit being like me. All, you're the one with all that that <laughs> rocket engineering money. <laughs> because I use a shop vac to evacuate the air quickly, uh, um, and so then the pump the pump doesn't have to work as hard to get to that vacuum point. Um, ultimately it, it performs the same way in the sense of the six CFM pump. It just doesn't evacuate air as fast. Yeah. So now the first, the first vac pump I used or wasn't a vac pump. It was actually a Venturi system. Yeah. With a compressor, right? With a compressor. Yeah. And that actually worked well, but I mean, it was maybe like a one to two CFM. It was mm-hmm. fine for a four by four bag actually. Mm-hmm. Which is what I used it for. It's just my compressor was old and very loud, and I didn't like having to listen to it all the time. What about you, Sean? You've got <laughs> a very nice uh, vac pump. Yeah, I got the uh, the Guy Dunlap edition. Um, I bought your <laughs> your old system, and I got a. Uh, can you? What CFM is the one that I got from you? It shows how much I know about it. I think I think it's about a three a three CFM. Okay, it it works really well. I have the four by four vinyl bag works great i wish i had a little bit smaller bag i'll probably end up buying a couple more bags uh uh, a four by eight i guess how how did you get your do they do other companies sell the the two by two bags i'm a complete noob when it comes to this stuff i've just got a four by four bag and been using that yeah yeah um veneersupplies.com sells a two by two bag yeah oh they do Mm -hmm. yeah yeah huh okay uh yeah but that's where i bought my four by four bag was from them that you guys covered everything. <laughs> Why don't you talk about that that system that I sold you? Because it's kind of it's kind of different. Well, you kind of put me on the spot. I don't I don't think that. I mean, <laughs> the pump I sold Sean was actually a a, a shop made one. Mm-hmm. That's why it's a little bit yeah. different. Oh yeah, yeah. You sorry, know? and that's from that's from veneersupplies.com. They sell a, a kit. That you can put to so for about a hundred and fifty dollars or under under two hundred bucks, you can get a pretty nice little system. And I think that's a three CFM system. Does it still run off of the compressor? No, no, it's got that that uh, built into it. Yeah, it's a whole it's- kit and caboodle. Um, but yeah, sorry, I didn't I didn't understand what you were meaning, guy. But yeah, it it works great. I started with a four by four bag. Obviously, guy steered me in that direction and. It's worked great for everything that, that I've needed. I would probably like to go and get a two by two bag next before going with a four by eight because I don't do a lot of big 
big pieces. Yeah, the four by eight is is nice, and I have I have two different platens that I use, and none of them are eight feet long. I've got like a one that's about five feet. That's four by five, and I've got one that's I've got another one that's about two and a half by four. And if I need to put something in the bag, I that's that's longer than either one of those. I just put the two together, right inside the bag, and that works really well. And as far as what to look for, I would just really figure out what you're going to use the bag for. I use mine for doing a lot of not just veneering, but also a lot of laminating. So if I'm going to make like table legs and I don't have eight quarter stock or whatever, I've used a bag before to, to laminate wood together to make legs instead of using multiple clamps. There's a lot of uses for it. Yeah. And then plus the, the added benefit of being able to, to make your own um, back clamps. Those little pods and then also your at-home ones, right? Yep. Was that the last question? That is. That was. Man, we motored through these pretty fast. Anyways, as I mentioned at the top of the show, we're going to recommend some folks to follow on social media. And uh, who, who do you have for us? I've got Alcorn Woodworking. It's Brian Alcorn. And he does a lot of period pieces, very intricate pieces. Right now, he's got a period uh, mirror and vanity chest of drawers. Really cool thing that he's doing with the legs where he's carving a floral ribbon around the the leg. And it's just absolutely beautiful work that he does. He also does some repairs on on federal pieces that he finds. Really cool guy. Really neat, uh, neat Instagram page. I think you'll enjoy it. Yeah, I've been following him for a while. I've been watching him build those, make those legs, and it's been a, a real treat to watch him. Yeah, yeah. I have, um, I'm going to share with you guys, Jonathan Scott underscore Woodcrafts. Uh, he is a professional luthier that shares amazing videos on repairing uh, the guitar, some tips and tricks. The cinematography is really good. He's extremely talented, nice guy. But definitely give him a follow. Uh, I think you're you're going to learn a thing or two and just enjoy his content. Um, he's he's very talented. Yeah, he's a friend. He's a friend of the show too. He's he's given us quite a few questions. Yeah, yeah. J- Jonathan Scott underscore Woodcrafts guy. I have Nick James Design, and Nick is from uh, the UK. Actually, the name of his company is Mushroom Works. Yeah. He's a designer and maker of fine furniture, according to his his Instagram uh, profile. And he is. He makes some great stuff. He does a, he's, does a lot of stuff and uh, makes a lot of mid-century modern stuff, but he incorporates a lot of uh, CNC work mm-hmm. in with some of his, his panels and things like that. And I, I've been looking at a lot of uh, mid-century modern stuff lately, but I've been following him for, for quite a while. Posts often has really good pictures and uh, shows a lot of the processes. And I, I really recommend following Nick James design. Cool. Well, I think that's going to do it for the show. And uh, we would like to thank everyone who left us a five-star review on iTunes. It really helps us in the search rankings. And of course we truly appreciate the support and feedback. Please remember this podcast is here to answer questions from the woodworking community. So if you do have woodworking questions you would like answered, you can send them through the podcast contact page at woodshoplifepodcast.com or DM us through Instagram at woodshoplife. And you can reach me at guyswoodshop.com. And where can you be found at, we? Alabamawoodworker.com. 
And Sean, where can we find you? At Simple Cove on the social sites and simplecove.com. Awesome. Well, that was a lot of fun, guys. And uh, we'll talk to you in a couple of weeks. All right. See you guys see later. Adios.